Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys. Uh, it was nice being able to take 10 days and get away with my wife. And uh, it's been a long time since we've been able to do that. <clears throat> but I'd encourage <clears throat> anyone in here, if you haven't been able to get away, just get away. It's a time of refreshing and reflection, and it, it's all good. Now, when we were away, I got this news article here. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it. <clears throat> California churches win court battle against Newsom and his lockdowns and will be repaid attorney's fees as well. So everything that Governor Newsom told us to do, you know, the first time we shut down is because we didn't know what we were dealing with. We didn't know if it was an actual plague that was going to wipe out 2 million people or if it was not. And so we took precautions. It was just a, a matter of safety and wisdom to do that. And so we shut down, we opened back up, then they wanted to shut us down again. And once people started coming, they wanted to limit the number to 25% and also no singing. They didn't want anybody singing. <clears throat> and then they, they were imposing all kinds of restrictions through the state of California. But I have always maintained that the highest law in the land is the Constitution. The President must be submissive to the Constitution. Congress must be submissive to the Constitution, as well as the Supreme Court. If the Supreme Court comes out and says, makes some ruling, and it is unconstitutional, we have a duty as good citizens to hold to the Constitution in spite of what the Supreme Court, the Congress, or the President says. That's what we're supposed to do. God would have us do that. So that is the supreme law of the land. Well, the governor came out and said that we cannot meet together and we cannot sing. <clears throat> the circuit court in California that ruled against him, pardon me, <clears throat> the one that ruled against him said, not only did you do wrong according to the Constitution, but you're going to repay $1.3 million in court costs to these churches that you are threatening to fine with jail time of up to one year. And so all along, all of these mandates that have come down, I have said that they have been unconstitutional, and that's why we have continued to meet together. The government has no authority because the Constitution says you shall make no law against, I'm going to paraphrase it, against us as a church or any church in the state of California and throughout the United States. So everybody that was getting upset about opening up, they were refusing to be the good citizen and hold to the Constitution of the United States. Those people who would say you have to maintain the numbers or the mask mandates, all of that. Some of it makes sense to do that because we didn't know what was going on. But as we stand right now, uh, we have been justified in doing this. And all the people who said, no, we just need to be submissive to the government, I believe that was incorrect and in error. Like I said, the first time we shut down, we didn't know. The second time they want us to shut down, not such a good idea. And we did do that for a little bit, but I just came to the conclusion, no, we're going to hold to the highest law of the land. The Lord wants us to be submissive to the highest law in the land, and so that's what we're going to do. And I'm glad that uh, this has come out. Now, I'm sure that they could go ahead and uh, <clears throat> try to relitigate this, appeal it, but uh, it just seems good. It seems full of wisdom that they have done this. Now, uh, on another note, the men's study is going to pick back up. I'm going to be back at the youth uh, this next week. Uh, thank you for those of you who filled in. Vince, thank you uh, very much uh, for doing that. I appreciate that. 
But as we get into the message here, you guys remember hearing the first time uh, it came to your ears that computers can get viruses, germs. It's like, right? What are you talking about? A computer can get a virus. And then I learned that computer viruses were often malicious programs developed by evildoers to destroy information or destroy the computers and steal information. Uh, They were often downloaded stealthily without knowing it. And perhaps they would be in an email attachment or in your browser. You wouldn't know exactly how you would get it, but they were out there. And then they published all kinds of uh, articles about this, about viruses and, and, you know, these nefarious characters out there just did it to see if they could do it and wreck somebody's computer. Well, you know, there are those who are viruses inside the body of Christ. They're called false teachers. And they wreak havoc in the same way. They will come in and they'll be there stealthily. And you have to be able to discern what is there. I I have a little program on my computer. It's called CC Cleaner. And there's a free app that you you can put on there, a free side. And there's also a pay side. I take the free side. And almost every time I sit down on the computer, I pump that thing in and I just have it examine the system. And it goes through and it examines everything. And and I can do nothing on it and just turn it on. And in the background, something will start operating like Microsoft Edge or something else. And it will tell me I have 1,135 trackers on my computer. And I go, what is that all about? And the malware that you can also get in there. So it cleans all that out and it'll go down to like one tracker. And I've always tried to get rid of the one tracker, but it, it won't get rid of it. And so these things are... Inside the operating system, they're kind of hidden there and false teachers come into church the same way and they come in and they're kind of hidden on the inside and then they just start interjecting a doctrine here and a doctrine there and a, a behavioral pattern over here and observance of the law over there and Paul is the one who warns us against this. We just went through the book of Galatians, and in Galatians we saw the Judaizers there trying to install their false doctrines following the Old Testament law, the circumcision that was there, and he just went ballistic on him. Well, this is a common thread throughout the New Testament. You see this in different books which are there, and Paul is always trying to correct the error inside the church, whether it's First Corinthians or First and Second Timothy and Titus, he's trying to correct the error that has crept inside the church. And this is not only a problem that existed in the first century church, but it exists for us now. And what we're going to do is continue with this. And First Timothy is where we're going to be this morning. And before we get in there, let's go ahead and pray and ask for God's blessing. <clears throat> Father, we come before you and we thank you for the Apostle Paul who spent so much time writing and encouraging churches. And I'm, I'm quite sure, Lord, that uh, he was a prolific writer and probably wrote so many letters to individuals that just needed some encouragement that we don't have today. But I thank you for what we do have, what you used him to write and that has been passed down to us this day. And since some of these subjects just repeat over and over, you have determined that they would be included in several letters. So we'd ask, Lord, that you would help us to heed what is in Scripture, to be on the lookout, to make sure our doctrine is correct, to be able to discern truth from error. And we pray that you would help us to do that as your disciples today. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Now this epistle was written towards the end of the ministry of the Apostle Paul, somewhere around 60 AD, sometime after his release from a Roman imprisonment. And while Paul was imprisoned in Rome, some false teachers crept in and started drawing people to themselves. And he warned the elders in Ephesus in Acts chapter uh, 20 in verse 17. And beginning in verse 29 of that same chapter, we have what he said to them. He said, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning you or each of you night and day with tears. So he knew supernaturally God told him that these false teachers are going to come in. But he probably also understood it's just the nature of human beings to fall into error. We do that on a regular basis, if not daily. We fall into error. We commit a sin, whether it's a small sin like driving on the roadway where our speed goes up. You know, I noticed yesterday I was driving on the freeway and the posted speed limit up on the 15 is 65 miles an hour. And if you're driving 65 miles an hour, you're going to be an impediment to traffic and somebody's going to get hurt, you know? And and so you're driving down the road and everybody's doing like 80 miles an hour and you're going, but 75, you know, and and the panels start coming off because you're going so fast, but you're looking at everybody else and they're just cruising along. It's no big deal, but we break the law when we do that. So is that acceptable? Do we need to repent of that? Is it, is it group thing? Is God going to hold us accountable for that? You know, we, we start getting into the minutia and I... I just go with the flow of traffic. I don't want to be a problem in that particular case. And I confess my sins to you and all of you can confess your sins to one to another after this. But it's the idea of all these errors that we just fall into, whether in thought or in deed. We just do it. And so Paul writes to Timothy and he encourages him on some of these Sinners, some of these lawbreakers, some of these false teachers that are inside the church in Ephesus. After all, it was Timothy who was the pastor of Ephesus. So in First Timothy chapter 1, in verse 1, <clears throat> Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. So Paul declares himself to be an apostle. Now, if you've been at this church any length of time, you know that there are certain qualifications for an apostle, and you also know there were more than 12 apostles. Actually, could you guess the number of how many apostles are listed in the New Testament? Well, I'm going to tell you, it's 19. There are 19 apostles that are listed in the New Testament, counting Judas and Jesus, excuse me, 18, counting Judas and Jesus, there are 18 mentioned in the New Testament. Now, these are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him, Paul, Joseph, whom the apostle uh, called, is the apostle called Barnabas, Acts 40, excuse me, Acts 40, verse 36, Matthias, Andronicus, and Junius, and then there's James, the brother of Jesus as well. 
in Galatians chapter 1, verse 19. So there's more than just 12 apostles. Now, these are those who were just sent out. They were ambassadors to carry the gospel message out to the entire world. And there are signs and wonders that uh, follow apostles. Now, remember, Jesus in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, is also called an apostle. Now, uh, you've heard me talk about this previously, but are there apostles for today? I don't believe so. Uh, the apostles were part of the foundation of the church when it was set up in the first century. But apostles are sent out to preach. Mark chapter 3, verse 14. He appointed 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. So that's one of their primary tasks is to go out to preach. And secondly, they had to be chosen by Jesus himself. Remember the apostle Paul. Now, we don't have the testimony of these other apostles like Andronicus and Junius. But the Apostle Paul, Jesus met him personally and talked to him and let him know what he was to do and and gave him instruction as far as doctrine was concerned. But they had to be chosen by Jesus himself in Acts chapter 1 verse 2 until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So they had to be chosen specifically by Christ. And with the other apostles, they had to be around the other apostles. Now, what about these other guys, the other guys that are not the 12? Well, they were probably around since the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and they were just considered disciples, and they ended up becoming apostles. Acts chapter 1, verse 21, it says, Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And this is where Matthias got chosen because Judas, of course, went out and committed suicide. So we know that Jesus sent out the apostles to preach. Uh, They were chosen by Jesus himself, and they were with the other apostles also, Miracles are a sign that somebody is an apostle. Acts chapter 5 verse 12, the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And these things mark an apostle in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, signs, wonders, and miracles were done among you with great perseverance. And so that, and that's primarily why I do not believe apostles are for today. Now, if somebody says it's a miracle, somebody got saved, that's not a miracle. A miracle would be somebody raising from the dead. That would be a miracle. Or sight being restored to a person born blind. That would be a miracle. Something like that. Or somebody who is leprous and the skin just becomes like baby skin. That would be a miracle. It's not something that, oh, we have a miracle service and people are healed. on. And not that people can't be healed from mental ailments, you know, psychological ailments. They can be. But the point of the healing was to bear testimony to the word that was going out. And so it had to be a physical manifestation type of healing or miracle. That's what had to take place. It can't be a miracle that is hidden. And so this is a, a item that would certainly follow an apostle, and of course, as I previously mentioned, they're foundational to the church. Ephesians 2.19 says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. So revisiting verse 1 in First Timothy, <clears throat> Paul says, He is an apostle of Christ Jesus, By the command of God, our Savior, and Christ Jesus, our hope. Now, 
you could easily say that you are a believer, a disciple of Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and Jesus Christ our hope. So just because somebody is an apostle, that's an office of the church, it doesn't mean you aren't also a member of the church by the command of God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior, our hope. Now this idea of talking about Jesus, our God and Savior, it's a common way in the Old Testament to refer to God. And in Psalm, uh, the Psalms 13 times, it was uh, stated such as God, our Savior, and also in Isaiah 10 times it's stated like that. So God and Savior are synonymous. They're not two different individuals. God is our Savior, both God the Father and Jesus Christ. Now that title was exclusive in the time of Jesus for Caesar, Caesar Nero. People were forced to say that Caesar was the savior. And so Paul writing down that God the Father or Jesus Christ is the savior is a finger in the eye to the Caesars that are there. There is only one God and one savior, and we know that to be Jesus Christ. And that's whom in whom we have our hope. Now, what is hope? Hope is confidence, expectation, anticipation. I'm anticipating seeing Jesus. Now, I hope it's not tomorrow, but, you know, it could be in 10 years. Whatever time frame he has on that, that's fine. But that is my hope, the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Titus 2.13. And so we're looking forward to that. We're holding on to that anticipation. It's like the person who goes to university. They have this hope that they're going to graduate and they're going to walk the procession and grab their diploma, their lambskin, so to speak. I think that's what it's called. Or I don't know if it's cowhide, but it's, I think it's a lambskin, their sheepskin. And they get that, that document that says that they have graduated. So they have this hope. They're going for an end goal. All of us have this hope as well. At least we should. If we're not looking towards heaven, saying this is the end goal, what hope is there? Just exist? Okay, I'm going to go to church and that's just wonderful and I'll just live my life. And I know I get sick sometimes but in one time I'm going to die, but oh, okay. No! We get a new body. We get the resurrected body. We get to be with Jesus. And when he comes back to earth and we're with him, he's riding on a horse and on his sides are king of kings and lord of lords. I was talking to a young man recently and he said, that's a tattoo. No, that's not a tattoo that it says king of kings and lord of lords on his side. Jesus didn't sit down in some tattoo parlor and get this tattoo on his legs while he was here. He, that didn't happen to him. I don't know how that's going to manifest, but I guarantee you it's not a tattoo, especially in the Old Testament where he said, don't be like the pagans and get tattoos. It's Leviticus 19 or 20, something like that. And it's not that now tattoos are prohibited, but I don't want to get off in that rabbit trail. I'm going to bring it right back to Jesus Christ, our hope. That's who we're looking for is Jesus Christ. And we're going to be right behind him. Thousands, millions of us are going to come back to earth with him. And he's on this horse and he's galloping away in heaven. This horse flies apparently. It's not Pegasus. I think it's just a white horse and he's coming down. And when he comes down, we're right behind him going, and we're coming down and he is going to stop the, the end of the tribulation. He's going to stop 
all the wickedness and the evil behavior that is there. He's going to take the beast, the false prophet, the antichrist. They're going to be done away with, and he's going to set up his kingdom. That's what we have to look forward to. You know, when Patty and I were away, I was just looking at the beautiful scenery that was where we were. It was just wonderful. And I'm thinking... I wonder if I can put in my order for a place like this during the millennium, you know, instead of Antarctica. And I don't even know if Antarctica is going to exist at, as it does right now, but it's just going to be a wonderful time. And I'm sure I'll have a new nature by then, and I'll be happy to go wherever he wants me to go. Um, you're going to sit next to this volcano. Woohoo! Okay, I'm going to next to this volcano, and I'm going to minister to people. And, and all the things that are going to take place, we look forward to that. And I think God encourages us to meditate on that what lies ahead imagine a bride before she gets proposed to and she thinks it's coming does she anticipate will you marry me of course she does she gets excited about something like that or the guy who says i'm going to get married someday i'm going to marry this woman it's the anticipation of what lies ahead and then after that it's kids you anticipate the kids and once you have the kids you go hey they but you, you keep on you keep on moving forward in the anticipation of what lies ahead now jesus is our anticipation and that's what we should look forward to so this blessed hope he is blessed and he is our hope now going on in verse two to timothy my true son in the faith grace mercy and peace from god the father and christ jesus our lord now he addresses it to timothy who was born to a Jewish mother named Eunice and a Greek father and his grandmother. Her name was Lois. And Timothy was taught the scriptures from a very early age. So he grew up as a believer. And this is due to the, the patriarchy that preceded him. And as I previously mentioned, he was the pastor in the church of Ephesus. Now, Timothy was a a tremendous, selfless individual. He knew what it was to be a disciple of Christ. Paul writes about him in the book of Philippians, in verse 19, chapter 2. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. And so he was just sacrificial, a young man probably in his 20s, early 20s. And he's going out there sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and ministering to people. He is truly the selfless one that we can look to and we can follow his example just as we follow the example of Christ and the Apostle Paul and the other servants that are listed in the New Testament. But he uses this phrase here as he's writing to Timothy, grace, mercy, and peace. Now, we just covered this in Galatians. Grace, of course, is chiris, and peace is shalom in Hebrew. You have the Greek and the Hebrew going there, but he adds a word And this word elios is mercy. So you have grace, mercy, and peace from God. And he only adds it here. He doesn't add it elsewhere. And who is he writing to? The pastor of the church of Ephesus. Mercy to you. Now, we know that grace is getting what you don't deserve. Justice is getting exactly what you deserve. And mercy is not getting what you do deserve. 
The pastor needs to not get what he does deserve. You follow that? Why would he need that as a pastor? Well, you know, sheep. How many videos have you seen where there's a sheep and butts the shepherd? Remember I showed you that one a few weeks ago? And that happens all the time. So pastors, they need mercy. They need mercy because they could act out something and oftentimes they often do with the people inside the church because they're sheeple that are inside the church and they can cause problems and problems for the life of the pastor. And so this is pretty unique here that he's dealing with Timothy, a pastor. The other letters are given to churches. This one's delivered to Timothy. And he's telling Timothy, hey, mercy to you. You're going to need that mercy. You just continue in the faith. It's all going to be good. So when you write this out in our vernacular of our day, it's God grants you, and he's talking to Timothy, God grants you what you do not deserve. That is the grace. He is not rewarding you according to what you have done as a result you will receive the peace that only God can give. And so he he gives this extra measure. He gives him mercy. Now, anybody who serves in any capacity in any ministry is going to need a little extra mercy. Why? Because people are sinners, including those who are serving. They are sinners as well. They can easily become judgmental and bitter uh, with the um, people inside the church, Just, just as if you saw a false shepherd False shepherd to get angry with the sheep. And what we do do? Beat the sheep, you stupid sheep. And they'd whack the sheep with the rod and get it to do something. Of course, the sheep doesn't know any better. It's like little children. I have to admit, when I was a, a young father, I didn't have as much patience as I do now. And now I, I have a lot of patience, especially for my grandchildren, my, uh, my youngest uh, grandson. Just a lot of patience. And he's not a, a bad child by any means. Hardly cries at all. And he's real compliant. And, you know, but I'm sure there's going to come a time when he turns to his parents or maybe even to me and he goes, no. And when he does that, am I going to just say, now steal? You understand something, right? You're not supposed to do this. And what if he just continues in that fashion? No, I will not. And, of course, Scripture speaks how you're supposed to deal with that. But I know the modern-day parenting um, mode is never discipline your child. Speak to them and reason with them. Uh, They don't have the capacity to reason. Remember when I told you about the idea of marijuana affecting the brain and the frontal lobe? It doesn't fully mature until about 25. How do you think a five-year-old is going to reason properly in their mind? They're, They're not going to. They just have to understand rote learning. This is right. This is wrong. Just follow it. Later, you'll figure out and you'll thank me. When you're older, you ever say that to your kids or your grandkids? One day you're going to thank me for this. My dad used to tell me that when I was young as well, and I do. I thank him for the instruction that he gave. Now, going on here in verse 3, this deals with the false teachers and false doctrine. He says, I urge you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies these promote controversies rather than god's work which is by faith so a common threat to the church that still exists today false teachers and false doctrine 
uh, as I said uh, just a few minutes ago, we just went through the book of Galatians and that was filled with controversy. But there will always be a struggle inside the church for power. There will be those who hold to a particular doctrine that will want to sway people in the way of that doctrine that they hold. Hopefully it's not a false doctrine. Now doctrines that we can have different views on, like eschatology. Is the rapture pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib? We can have discussions about that all day long, and I think it's good to have discussions about that. There's only one right way, but there, there's a reason why we have discussions about these to kind of figure out what God's will is. And, and he did this on purpose. He didn't make it always so crystal clear on all the issues uh, dealing with eschatology, but we, we have the framework, and that's where we divide the scriptures, we study, we, we take them apart, we try to understand exactly what he meant there. But there will always be this struggle uh, like on the idea of sin uh, in the church today. There is a move in many churches to uh, declassify or lower in its importance sin and not deal with sin. Just put it down a notch, not make it so high on the list of what has to be dealt with. But he tells Timothy with regard to these false teachers and false doctrine he goes stay in Ephesus why does he have to tell them to stay in Ephesus well it's the question would be why does he want to leave well there are problems in Ephesus you know he tells the church in Ephesus to put on the full armor why because you're doing battle actual battle now Hopefully it's not physical inside the church. Could you imagine a brawl inside the church <laughs> with the love of Christ? <laughs> you know, so, no, that's, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Our, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and ruler of darkness in the heavenly realms. <clears throat> and we have this sword of the spirit and we're supposed to use it. We're supposed to take that sword and we're supposed to thrust it in and, and kill that which is false. Now, not literally kill somebody, but kill the false teaching, the false doctrine, which is there. And that's what we're supposed to wage war against. But chances are he was under pressure. Why don't you just leave? You have this doctrine, just leave. The rest of us we have this faction over here and this is what we're holding to and you just need to exit and go somewhere else. And Paul says, don't leave. Stay there. Remain and fight the good fight. And so he gives him this instruction. Now there was false doctrine going around at that time. The Gnostics are knowing, or Gnosis. Uh, this group was uh, pervasive in that first century church. And they taught things like Jesus was not human. Because anything human is evil, therefore Jesus could not be human. And because Jesus is not evil. Then they taught that Jesus was not God. That he could not be divine. That he was only a man. Then they taught that there were many gods and different factions of this Gnosticism which were out there. And then there was this knowledge is the path to salvation. Not Jesus, but knowledge. You just have to know the right spiritual things in order to get there. And then they taught that there is no such thing as sin. It's all an illusion. And then there's the practice of asceticism which leads to salvation. Asceticism is 
you don't eat a lot of food and you treat your body harshly. And Paul talks against this in the book of Colossians uh, in chapter 3. And we think that that makes us more spiritual to treat the body harshly. And Paul let us know, no, this isn't the case. This is false doctrine. So these are some of the false doctrines that were going around at that time that were probably also in the church of Ephesus, as well as those who wanted to adhere to the Old Testament law, like the Judaizers in the book of Galatians. So for today, for us, what are we dealing with that would be considered false? Now, there has been the word of faith, name it and claim it. Some people sarcastically say, grab it and blab it, or blab it and grab it type of thing. Then there's the health and prosperity doctrine. Uh, God never wants you to be sick. He doesn't want you to die. It's amazing how many people have preached that and they're dead today. Uh, It's really a a bad doctrine. Or God wants you to be rich. I've heard pastors say that the only reason you're not rich is because you're not believing God that you can be rich. And I'm rich because God wants me to be rich and he wants you to be rich, but you just don't have enough faith. And that's kind of what they teach them. Does God want everybody to be rich? The answer is no. It's a rhetorical question. He says, the poor you will have with you always. And they try to reinterpret that in some fanciful way, but it's just false doctrine. God does not want everybody to be rich. <clears throat> you know, I, I believe that I was called to be born in San Diego, to live in San Diego, to pastor in San Diego, and probably die in San Diego, maybe somewhere else. But I, I think that's my life. That's where I'm supposed to go. That's where I'm supposed to be as foreordained according to the book of Acts. He does that for all of us. And, and so having this in mind, we want to make sure that we are carrying out God's will for us. That we are not simply uh, just being idle, so to speak. And, and this idea of health and prosperity, whether we're supposed to be rich, we're supposed to be poor, I don't know. I, I have seen God's hand move where I think I'm going to go in a particular direction with a, a business venture or something, and he squashes it. it. No, that's not happening today. Okay, I'm going to go in another direction and maintains that, that way for a little while. And I think, okay, I'm going to start taking off it. He squashes it. No, you're staying right here, right in this mode. It's being happy with the station in which God has determined you're supposed to be in. Why has God determined that some people, believers, will be just incredibly rich and others just incredibly poor? Why has he done that? And make no mistake, I don't doubt for a minute that he has actually chosen us for a particular level quote-unquote, in culture or in society. He has done that. Why has he done that? I don't know. I, I don't know why he has done that for a particular person, but he has. And contentment with godliness, Scripture says that's great gain. And so when we look at all the circumstances around us, that's why he says don't covet. Why? Because you were called to a particular station. You know, so many people where we were, there were... Uh, Boats, big boats, some bigger boats than others, but they were boats and wealthy. And, you know, they, they just had a lot and they were enjoying their time. And, I, and one couple I met, I just said, that, that's wonderful. Good for you. I'm happy. I look at it as that's a maintenance nightmare. 
I ain't having it. You know, but for you, if you want it, that's just great. And so I'm just content as can be, like a peach pit inside of a peach. I'm, I'm willing just to abide right there. And I've learned that over the years and how great that is to come to that. So if somebody comes along and teaches that God wants you to be rich, oh, there are many problems that come with being rich. Have any of you invested in Bitcoin? Have you seen that roller coaster that's just going up and down and that Dogecoin that's out there? And it's like, I don't have to worry about any of that. You know, it's not a problem. But some people lay awake at night worrying about that. Well, what else has been out there? The emergent church, you know, that walk the prayer maze and light the candles and don't have a traditional service. That, that whole movement that was going on in the 90s and the early 2000s. And then there's this movement for tolerance. We need to be tolerant inside the church. And I agree with that. We need to be tolerant of those who are weak in in the faith. But that's not the tolerance that the world is pushing on the church. There's the secular idea of the LGBTQI+. There's racism. There's wokeism. There's uh, the idea of lessening the degree of sin that everybody experiences. There's doctrine. And some of the churches, some of the big churches are going in the wrong direction. For instance, in this book, we're going to get to the place where God says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, which means they they cannot be ruling elders inside of a church. And there are churches that are moving in that direction. One you will recognize. Pastor Rick Warren just ordained three women in a Southern Baptist church, and it is creating... A firestorm. And that, I believe, is bad doctrine. Now, I went to a seminary that would ordain women. And I wrote a paper that they would have us read a book every week. And you had to write a paper on it. And so I wrote this paper. This guy was um, advocating for women being ordained. And I said, well, that's not what scripture says. doesn't mean women are less. That has nothing to do with that at all. Women are co-heirs with men they are equal with men and jesus christ is the only one throughout history who has elevated the woman to the status that she is and we are to respect women we're to protect women as men but then there's a feminist movement that say women are equal to men and that's just a lie even men are not equal to other men Uh, and to say that women are equal to men that's so untrue women have Uh, skills and aptitudes that are so much head and shoulders over men where men they have the same thing skills and aptitudes that are just head and shoulders above women it's just god has called us to a particular station as a man or a woman certain things we're supposed to accomplish certain jobs we're supposed to fulfill you know today i've seen a couple of accounts of where leaders of corporations have said men can't get pregnant and they've been fired for saying that it's like You've got to be kidding me. And, and if you say that a, a man can't be a woman or a woman can't be a man, you can be fired for that because it is not part of the, the doctrine of the world which is out there. And if the church does that, then they're called hateful and they're to be shunned and the church is no good. And if you hold to that, then you are to be shunned and you are to be considered hateful when God says, no, if you're a man, be a man. If you're a woman, be a woman. Now, that's not to say, especially with the LGBTQI+, that people are not born with particular propensities. 
Like, have you ever seen a man who is just effeminate? We did on the plane, coming back. It's like, it's no question. You know, they're, they're a little effeminate. You can tell by their dress and the toenail polish, which is white and, and all of that. You can tell the person is effeminate. But God says, like for the man, well, be a man. King David told his son Solomon, be a man. And it's okay to be a man. But what if you have certain proclivities? What if you feel like you're more of a woman or more feminine? Or what if you're a woman and you feel like more like, call me Tom. No offense to the people who are named Tom, but you know, or call me Jack. No offense to the people who are named Jack. You want to be called by a masculine name. Well, what about that? Are you supposed to give into that? Well, what about the person who is greedy? Should you encourage them? Oh, you go ahead and be greedy. We accept all people around here. No, we're not supposed to do that. What about murderers? You go ahead and operate in your murderous thievery, whatever it might be. We don't encourage people and stuff like that. But individuals in the world want to take some bad behaviors and make them okay. What was it, Prop 47 in the state of California that said that it's no longer a felony to steal $950 worth of stuff from a store? And what happened? Thievery went up. Did you hear? What, what is it? 17 Walgreens just closed in San Francisco. Why? Because people would come in and steal $949 worth of stuff and walk out. And, and it's only a misdemeanor now. And you think that decisions like that don't have consequences? They do. And so there is this move to change. What is it? Isaiah 520 that says you call evil good and good evil. And you change things around. The Antichrist wants to do that, you know. He wants to change the calendar and what we celebrate on the calendar. We're in the midst of doing that right now. What Columbus Day is now what uh, Italian-Americans Day and not Columbus Day. And President's Day it used to be George Washington and Lincoln. These are small ones, and they changed that to President's Day. And it used to be two separate weekends. And just all of this, there is a move to change everything as far as our culture is concerned, to change everything as far as morality is concerned. And Paul is telling Timothy in this move inside the church, don't let it happen as far as doctrine is concerned. Now, some of this other stuff, we really ought not to get involved in too much the secular stuff. Like, did Jeffrey Epstein really kill himself? I have no idea what's going on with that. We don't have the evidence. seems kind of funny, the things that are going on. But we can bring stuff like that into the church and spend time on just controversies all day. Now, this particular church, they were dealing with doctrinal controversies, which were going back and forth. But for us today, we bring all kinds of stuff into the church, not just doctrine, but all kinds of political stuff. We bring that into the church and we start arguing about it. Should I be conservative? Should I be liberal? What should I be, a Democrat or Republican? It's be moral. Be moral and let that morality guide you. If there's some particular party, priests and freedom party or libertarian or whatever it is, if they're being moral, follow them. If they're not being moral, condemn them. Just say, no, it's wrong what you hold to. This idea of abortion, It's wrong according to scripture. You should not hold to it. And we should not be tolerant of it as well. We should not say, well, you know, there's some that hold different beliefs than you and we should be tolerant. No, we're supposed to say this is wrong. That's why Paul told Timothy, stay there and fight against this wrong doctrine. And this is the encouragement that he's been given. Also, myths. Myths are things that are made up. 
they, they taught these things that they just concocted in their mind when Patty and I were away. She was reading this book. She got this book from a friend. And this book, the name of it is Love Lifted Me. And the author of this book, uh, admittedly, she suffered many tragedies. And that's what I think is uh, what helped sell the book. Uh, She was abused, divorced. She miscarried drug abuse. She was involved in alcoholism. And she goes on to teach things in her book that are just made up. No scriptural basis. So Patty, she's in the book, and she's opening it up. She goes, listen to this. <laughs> and I, as she's reading, my mouth it just keeps opening. What? What? I said, it's, that's made up. What? Like, for instance, you can transfer from yourself a demon to somebody else. That's in First Speculation, chapter 1, verse 16. Did you catch that? First Speculations, chapter 1, verse 6. There is no first speculation. She just completely made it up. Or this idea, now this is something I, I know something about, that a Christian cannot be demon-possessed. She goes on to say, a Christian can be demon-possessed. I had, she said, I had dozens of them. Where are you getting this from Scripture? Now, when I was still at Calvary Chapel of Mesa, I went through a, a book by I.C. Iverson or C.I. Iverson where this guy makes the case that a, a Christian can be demon-possessed, but they call it demonized, where you have this house with many rooms, and in one closet is this little demon, and you're fine all the rest of the time, but every once in a while, this little demon gets out, runs and scurries around the house, makes a mess, and goes back into the little closet. And you've got to go into that closet, and you've got to take out that demon where Jesus Christ resides in the whole house, you got to take out that demon and get rid of that demon through a deliverance ministry. This is just totally made up doctrine. And it removes this idea of, well, why don't you just call it sin? This is something that is sin. And you have a proclivity to sin. That's your human nature. And you can call it sin. You don't have to blame it on a demon. And then it got to the point of being ridiculous, demon of baldness, demon of bad breath, all of these things that they had there. And these are just doctrines that have been made up completely. And this particular author, she touts Kenneth Hagin and Kenneth Copeland, which are not paragons of virtue when it comes to proper doctrine. Uh, especially Kenneth Copeland, I would say you need to avoid everything that that man teaches. Uh, Did you see how he rebuked the COVID virus and how it was supposed to go away? There's a little YouTube video on it. Just ridiculousness is what he teaches. And I'm not afraid to call stuff like that out. When we see it, we're supposed to do that. Not only myself as a pastor of a church, but all of us are supposed to do that. We're supposed to be aware of proper doctrine is and be able to point out what improper doctrine is. And then they would talk about endless genealogies. Now, <clears throat> I, I've done some genealogical searches. My brother did some searches. We go all the way back. I, there's a, a, a Botker mansion in uh, New Mexico. I've actually been there. I've seen it. And, and it's named after a side ancestor that's named Botker, and it goes all the way back to this guy named uh, uh, Johann Frederick Botker, and he developed a particular clay, porcelain, that he was killed for, and there's uh, also a Botker handle uh, that he is famous for when it comes to clay and, and porcelain and all of that. And you go back, and we have some royalty back there, and, and so it, it was fun looking at that. But these individuals here in the churches, they would go on about 
endless genealogies. Now, why did they do that? And you have to have some context for this. Well, Herod, who was an Idumean, was half Jew. And Idumean means he came from the area of Esau uh, and Edom. And, and so he was half Jew, half Israeli. And he was kind of tired of the noble origin of the Jews. And so he made a decree that all public registries that kept track of the lineages, the genealogies that were in the temple, be destroyed. He destroyed them all. And so the rest of the people had to kind of go by memory. Well, so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. And And if you go back in the Old Testament, you'll see that in Chronicles and Numbers. and, And you can read that stuff that's there. Well, Herod did that. And because of that, these teachers that were coming in and they were Jews, they would argue about who begat who begat who begat who. And there's only one genealogy that matters. And it's listed twice in scripture. And that's of Jesus Christ. All the rest of us, it doesn't matter where we came from. It it, it doesn't matter one hoot, one jot or tittle there, there's nothing to it at all it, it doesn't ma- matter your background what family you came from what the history of the family was none of that matters because we're all the same in Christ Jesus and, and so Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 3 verses 13 and 14 he says but one thing I do forgetting what is behind and shining forth or toward what is ahead I press towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus and so we just look forward. We don't look back at that stuff. Now, if you want to, just for funs and giggles, go ahead, look back. But as far as Christ is concerned, it doesn't matter. And what matters is what we're doing now with Christ. And then controversies. Uh, controversies. Have you noticed that lately in the news, and I'm wondering where this is heading. Lately in the news, they have been putting out stories about UFOs. Have you seen that? If go back 10 years, we know nothing. But now it's like, oh, yeah, military wants to confirm that these vehicles are like almost supernatural. They have technology that we don't have. And where is this coming from? And is it us? Have we reversed engineered something from the aliens which are there? And what does that mean as far as salvation is concerned? Are they subject to the fall? Do they exist in the universe? Do they not exist in the universe? And you can go on and on and on about that. Now, it's fun just to have a nice conversation if you want to about that stuff or chemtrails or government conspiracies or did Mary Magdalene marry Jesus and have kids you know you you can go on and on and on about these controversies which are there and God tells us just don't just stick with the simple gospel now controversies inside the church I have a list of them here that this was taken from a Twitter survey they just wanted to know what what controversies are inside the church? And of course, they got the often heard ones. The temperature is not right in the sanctuary. Color of carpet, order of worship, color of walls, uh, change in the time of corporate worship, uh, the length of service, the worship style. I'm sure all of us have had an opinion at one time or another. Well, I like Kim better than Bill. 
Or I like Bill better than Kim. I like her song selection better. I hate his or I like his and I don't like hers. And Oh, it's okay. It's wonderful. And guest worship, oh, it's fine. Or guest speaker, well, I don't know. He lacked a little bit. It wasn't Pastor Bill. I mean, you just go through these things inside the church. And we all have opinions and it's great. But when you start arguing over them, controversies, let me give, I'm going to read some of these. Argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. Fight over whether or not to build a children's playground or use the land for a cemetery. A deacon accusing another deacon of sending an anonymous letter and deciding to settle the matter in the parking lot. Fisticuffs. A church dispute of whether or not to install restroom stall dividers in the women's restroom. A church argument and vote to decide if a clock in the worship center should be removed. A 45-minute heated argument over the types of filling, oh, filing cabinets to purchase black or brown, two, three, or four drawers. These are the important things inside a church. A fight over which picture of Jesus to put in the foyer. A petition to have all church staff clean-shaven. A dispute over whether the worship leader should have his shoes on during the service. We actually had a worship leader here once. Took his shoes off. And you should have seen the eyes of the people. Where's his shoes? I don't know. How come he's not wearing shoes? What's going on? We need to talk to the pastor about this. Okay. That's actually something that has happened to us. Uh, How about this one? A big church argument over the discovery that the church budget was off by 10 cents. Someone finally gave a dime to settle the issue. I have to admit that this is 10 times more important than the church missing a penny. You got that, huh? A dispute in the church because the Lord's Supper had crammed grape juice instead of grape juice. Uh, Business meeting arguments about whether the church should purchase a weed eater or not. It took two business meetings to resolve. Arguments over what type of green beans the church should serve. Two different churches reported fights over the type of coffee. In one of the churches, they moved from Folgers to a stronger Starbucks brand. In the other church, they simply moved to a stronger blend. Members left the church in the latter example. I've got more of these, but I'm not going to go through them. They, and there's one time, I, some of you may have heard me tell the story. In the early years of the church, the head usher, he overslept. And we, had, we were a mobile church and I had to set up the chairs, so I helped set up the chairs. He came to me and said, it's not your job. It's my job. Wake up. You know, if you want to set up the chairs, wake up. Coffee, decaf, regular. Should we have both? Should we only have one? We've actually had those discussions inside a church where people get upset about stuff like that. Controversies or arguments inside the church. And the Lord says, just don't. Just don't do that. We're to avoid those types of things inside the church. And there's opposition. There's always going to be opposition from leaders inside the church over different things. Well, why aren't we doing this? Or why are we doing it that way? You know, 
all of these types of problems are in the church and we want to make sure that we have the proper doctrine we have good teachers not false teachers because after all they can lead to spiritual problems as well as actual physical harm to those inside the church all you have to do is remember the people's temple the branch davidians and heaven's gate you guys remember those jim's jones david koresh and marshall applewhite the people are dead because of false doctrine and we want to make sure that we don't even get close to that. Verse 4 says, Nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. They promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. And so these false teachers are doing all of these things, given to myths, endless genealogies, promoting controversies, but n- rather than God's work, which is by faith. And I think he puts in which is by faith because there is a controversy. Well, you have to have some works in there too. And he's trying to make a distinction there that it is by faith and not by works. In verse 5, it says, The goal of the command is love, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Those three things. We are to act with a heart of love, and that love is to be cultivated out of a pure heart where you have no ulterior motives. Where you just say, okay, whatever the Lord wants, if maybe this is helpful. And you use counsel and you say, you think this is a good idea? And the people say, well, yeah, that's a good idea. Or no, that's not such a good idea. A good conscience, which means void of sinful behavior. You want to get rid of as much sinful behavior as you possibly can. Because bad behavior comes from a cover-up of sinful behavior. And then a sincere faith, unfeigned, genuine, real, true, honest, unforced, heartfelt, wholehearted, and bona fide. That's the type of individual where love is supposed to be expressed out of. And we're supposed to be cultivating this as a body of Christ. And it says, some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. Which means some people have wandered away from the pure heart of good conscience and sincere faith and God's work to promote controversies inside the church. If you ever hear of somebody inside the church just promoting stuff like you go, what? That doesn't sound right. It's like you're on the computer and you have this virus and everything's just slowing down. You're going, what is going on with this thing? You need to get the CC cleaner in there or the Christ cleaner in there to wipe out this stuff and God can give you discernment just like the computer program has the discernment. And God can use all of us and say, wait a second, this doesn't sound quite right here. And so we need to put a check on that, make sure it's proper doctrine, that somebody isn't teaching something that is bad. Now, there's much more to say about this, but this is just a primer, so to speak, about the false teachers who are out there. And they are all over the internet, they are all over the television, they are all over churches, and we want to make sure we are solid in our doctrine, that we are acting out of love, motivated by a pure heart, a clean conscience, or a good conscience, and a severe, severe, a sincere faith. Also severe. Be into it with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's what we want. If we do that, we are going to protect ourselves spiritually, and we'll also be able to give a reason for the hope that lies within to those who are outside the church, and be able to give proper doctrine to other people you know in other churches. And this is critical to do this. The person that gave my wife the book was a believer. It's like, I hope you're not giving this book to anybody else. You know, we we need to make sure we have checks and balances inside the church. May the Lord give you wisdom 
to know his pure and perfect will, that you will understand the simple doctrine, the gospel, the simplicity of the gospel, which is supposed to go out. And every once in a while, we can have a discussion about UFOs. Okay, yeah, UFOs, yeah, they're out there. What are they? I have no idea. Okay, let's move on. What about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Just, just keep it on the same level. Don't worry about being on the fringes all the time. May God grant you the grace to understand these things when they pop up, these controversies, and recognize false teachers. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you for Paul warning us, not just the church in Ephesus, not just Pastor Timothy, but warning us through this letter that these things still exist. Help us to be attentive to your word that we may understand doctrine. May we pay attention to your spirit that would lead us and give us discernment of what spirit somebody is of. And we know this is your will for us, Lord, but help us to give ourselves fully to this work and not to the ways of the world. And with your help, we'll do it. In Jesus' name, and the church said...